0: As you may have noticed, we are currently in a sermon series in James called A Life Well Lived, and today I want to continue that series, and today I want to talk to you about things to remember when life feels tough. Things to remember when life feels tough. You know, a life well lived, which is what this sermon series is called, is a life that remembers The things you remember ultimately reveal to you the things that you value. You know, today we collectively remember the lives that were laid down in service of our freedom. We remember not only to honour the legacy of those who have sacrificed for our freedom, but we remember so that we might learn the lessons, carry those forward, and pray and hope for a Peaceful future. Let me ask you a question. What do you remember when times feel tough? What do you remember? Do you sometimes feel angry or avoidant? Do you go into fight or flight mode? Do you find it hard to sometimes breathe? And maybe sometimes you might even start to hyperventilate. Or do you feel like you reach for the wine or the crisps or your phone to numb the emotional overwhelm that we feel right now? You know, I don't know if you sometimes read the headlines or you listen to about the advances of AI or you think about the climate change crisis or the current global financial situation. And that stuff starts to send your head into a bit of a panic when life feels tough, do you want to withdraw, disengage, and to retreat into your own bubble, to look inward? Because I know that I do all of the things I mentioned in the past 30 seconds. I do all of those things every single day. And I'm desperately looking for peace. Peace, not just for our world, but an inner peace. And sometimes I think about what is solid and secure and stable to build on during a time when the world feels like it's shaking. And the conclusion that I've come to is that only Jesus can give me the thing that I really need. And every day being tethered to Jesus, experiencing his presence is what gets me through. It gives me this ability to try and be a non-anxious presence in our world. And I feel like that's what we so desperately need right now, non-anxious presences. And over the past month, I have been traveling all across London, meeting up with some of you in your workplaces, in your communities, and just having a coffee and a chat. And in our conversations, I've walked away so encouraged and so inspired. Because even in tough times, many of you are trying your best to remember God, to create space for him. Many of you are trying your best to be a non-anxious presence in your workplace when things are really stressful. Many of you are trying to be a non-anxious presence in your community, in your family. And I know that many of you are trying to be a stable, solid, secure person for a young person who's struggling in your life. Many of you are seeking after God, even during tough times. And I want to read to you from James 1, verse 2. And I'm going to read from the message translation. Anyone who meets a testing challenge head on and manages to stick it out is mighty fortunate. For such persons loyally in love with God, the reward is life and more life. Or in the NIV, it says this, the person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. You know, when times feel tough, it's easy to think about our own perspective and to look at things from our own human perspective. But this morning, I want to offer you things to remember when life feels shaky. And it's to remember this, remember your relationship with God. Remember God's perspective and remember God's priorities. The thing is, we can often face tough times and we can want those tough times to stop. But one of the themes of James is that he encourages people in tough times to hold on to your faith, to hold on to Jesus, because actually it is God's perspective that matters, and it's God's priorities that matter. And I know that when I look back in my life, the toughest times, without a doubt, have been the times that I've grown most. And actually the goal of life is not necessarily to be happy, But the goal of the Christian life is to become more like Jesus and to be closer to God. And I don't know whether you have experienced this yourself, but I know that I've experienced this in my life. When I go through the toughest times, I experience the closeness of God in a way that I know I haven't necessarily experienced during the easier times in my life. James is a very practical book. But in addition to being quite practical, it's a very punchy book. James assumes you have a relationship with Jesus, and he talks about what your life will look like if you are loyally in love with him. In tough times, we remember to double down on spending time in God's presence. And actually, in the book of James, there is this reminder to pursue God's perspective and God's priorities. James knows that the influence, the ideology, and the pull of the world is so strong. And the entire book of James is this reminder, and I need to be reminded all the time, to remember what we really believe, to remember the values of the community of the people of God, and to dare to live courageously and to resist, to reshape and transform the culture around us. In James 2 verses 1 to 5, we read this in the message translation. My dear friends, don't let public opinion influence how you live out your glorious Christ-originated faith. If a man enters your church wearing an expensive suit and a street person wearing rags comes in right after him, and you say to the man in the suit, sit here, sir, this is the best seat in the house and ignore the street person or say, better sit here in the back row. Haven't you segregated God's children and prove that you are judges who can't be trusted? Listen, dear friends, isn't it clear by now that God operates quite differently? He chose the world's down and out as the kingdom's first citizens with full rights and privileges. This kingdom is promised to anyone who loves God. So the things to remember are God's perspective and God's priorities. I've been working here at HDB for seven years, but I used to wear a proper suit in my old life. I used to practice law and I did that for 10 years. And actually for 10 years, I lived in New York City. And there's something about going to a place, going to a big city that influences and shapes the way you see things and the things that you valued. I arrived in New York City aged 21. And as soon as I got there, I figured out I'm wearing the wrong clothes, I'm wearing the wrong shoes, and I'm wearing the wrong makeup. I was a hot mess. And I remember walking down the streets of New York City and looking around, I was like, everyone is so pretty here. And everyone is so well-dressed. And I quickly figured that everyone wears black in New York. It's a great colour. So basically, over time, I started wearing black so I could fit in a little bit better. It's actually a very um, flattering colour for everyone. So that's what I used to wear when I used to live in New York. And as a lawyer, I, um, how it kind of works a little bit in law is that in order to get promoted to partner level, you basically have to not only be technically competent and very good, you have to work very hard, but you also have to schmooze and you have to do a lot of what's known as business development and networking. And so um, in my conversations with at work, I remember um, the partner saying, well, if you want to get to a certain level, you need to start to bring in some business. And what they would encourage me to do is go to networking events and basically uh, work through room. And as soon as I heard that, I think something in me died because I hate going to networking events. Um, I actually could think of, I would rather like stick pencils in my eyes than go to a networking event, if I'm being really honest. And when I think about it, the reason why I didn't like networking events is because they were always a little bit snooty. Yeah, this is New York City where people are, like very busy and they want to make every minute count. So I'd walk into a room and you start talking to someone and the first question they'd ask you is like, oh, what law school did you go to? And then they'd ask you, oh, so what firm are you with? And actually like, you know, I mean, those are questions that people ask all the time. But um, what I experienced was like very quickly, if you didn't go to an Ivy League school and if you didn't work for a big enough corporate firm that was like, oh, it's time to get out of this conversation and move and talk to somebody else. And so that is what tended to happen, really. And after a while, um, every time I'd summon up my strengths, be like, come on, we can do this. We're going we're gonna to bring in some business. And I remember I would have a performance review every year and the partners would sit down and every year we'd talk about the same things. We'd talk about um, how many hours I'd done, how many clients I'd billed, um, are my clients happy? Am I bringing in more work? And am, am I getting more referrals? And the ultimate goal was really like, the more money you make for this business, the better. And I remember, I mean, it's a for-profit law firm, so you, you do understand. But I remember like, um, I remember being at that stage of my life and I, I just, I wanted to do well. And so I'd, I worked really hard and actually I, I made the firm so much money, that by the age of 29, I'd made partner. And I think a lot about the things that I sacrificed over that period of time, because I was just in the office a lot. And I remember um, when I was living in New York City, I would start to look at people through the lens of wealth, power, appearance, and status. And every time I'd meet someone, I'd look at them through that lens of like, is this person going to help me to get where I want to go in life? Is this person going to advance my career? And if I didn't think so, I'd just start moving on. And, and that was just kind of the environment and culture that I was in. And if I'm being really honest, when I was living in New York City, I would say I was quite obsessed with my own priorities and my own perspective. And one of the questions I get asked a lot by people is, how have you made this transition from like working in law to working for the church? Is it any different? And it's such a big question that I, sometimes I don't even know how to answer it. But when I think about it, I'm like, yeah, it's, it's quite different. It's quite different. <laughs> um, and I think that's because the measures of success in the Western capitalistic model and the values of God and the way Jesus sees people is radically different. It's radically different. And when I reflect on my time in New York, I I really wish I'd spent more time wrestling with why I found it so hard to share the reason for the hope that I have in Jesus with my, the people around me. I found it really hard to talk about my faith in Jesus. I wish I'd spent more time asking myself, am I becoming more like Jesus in my character and in the way I do business? And this is the thing that really challenges me is did I spend any time thinking about the poor and the powerless, while I was living my life. And I remember my homelessness was a real thing. In New York City, it is, it's, it's pretty bad. Every day you would walk on the streets and you would see someone who has men- serious mental health challenges. And many of the homeless were actually former veterans that had um, served their country and had come back impacted by the trauma of war and fighting. And there was just no safety net for them. And so they would often hit, I imagine, drugs and alcohol to numb the pain and to numb the things that they'd seen. And I think that's one of my reflections and the things that I think about is how do I see the people around me? What does God think about the people around me? What does God think about the powerless and the poor and the struggling? How can I see these things not from my own perspective, but from God's perspective? Because that is the perspective that is definitive. And I think that is what James is getting at in this passage. He's saying, don't let the ideology of the world infiltrate or dominate the culture of this community, the community of Jesus. Because in this community... The community of Jesus, we don't look at people through the lens of wealth, power, status, and appearance. In this community, it's okay to feel wounded, and broken, and vulnerable, and poor. In this community, it's okay to rock up to church on a Sunday morning and say, I'm not okay right now. This is the marker of this community. And James is saying, when you walk through the doors of this community, you shouldn't experience judgment or condemnation or discrimination or bias. You know, the ideology of elitism, of materialism, of prejudice and raci- racism is so rampant through all sectors of our society. This ideology is so strong, but James is so it's saying, not in the community of Jesus. We live by a different set of values and we look at things in a totally different way. And I think this way, this lens of seeing both ourselves and one another, it needs to change. The way we see our lives, our story, the people around us, has to be filtered through the lens of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit, that kind of living is possible. My dear friends, don't let public opinion influence how you live out our glorious, Christ-originated faith. So remember God's perspective. But what are God's priorities? What are God's priorities? I was born and raised in London but I grew up on a council estate in North London and the council estate was in Maida vale. and I remember I would tell people in New York that I lived in Maida vale because actually Maida vale is known as a very kind of affluent middle-class area with lots of very pretty mansions but the bit of the street I lived on was um, the bit where the rich and the poor met and there are lots of council estates. In fact, there are, there are council estates in South Kensington. If you walk around here, you will see there, is, there are estates everywhere. And, um, but I would tell people I lived in Maideville and I would let them make their own assumptions about where I lived because I wasn't going to tell them I grew up on a council estate. And so I grew up in a council estate. And every day on the estate, when you walk to take the lift to go downstairs, you wouldn't know whether someone had urinated in there and as a child, I would see all kinds of things on the estate. There were issues with drug, drugs and alcohol. Um, and I think life was just really tough for some people on the estate. They, they had so little, and the only way to escape their pain was to go and reach for things to numb um, the pain in their life. There was so much trapped pain. And... We all believe a story about ourselves based on the environment that we're in. You know, when, when I was living in New York, the, the environment I was in told me a story about what I should value. But when I was growing up on the estate, I, the story I told myself as a child was that my life doesn't matter. My life will amount to nothing. And my life has no value. That is what it sometimes feels like growing up In poverty. And when I was 10 years old, my primary school teacher talked to my dad, and she said, I think Catherine should take a special assessment, and I think she should go to this girls' school, and this girls' school will give her access to better opportunities, there's a better quality of teaching, and I think she'll really thrive there. And she told my dad. And my dad went away to think about it. And I think when he was trying to balance what was the best thing for my life, he couldn't bear the thought that I would be labeled the poor child in a class of very privileged middle class girls. And he couldn't bear the thought that I might be labeled not only the poor child, because we would never be able to afford to go on any of the school trips or class excursions. And he worried that I would get bullied or ostracized because of our background, that the other girls in the school wouldn't want to come to our house to play because we lived on a council estate. And so my dad very politely went back to the teacher and said, "Um, I think Catherine's just gonna go to a regular school. And she's not gonna do the assessment. And so I ended up going to a secondary school in central London um, and I would say through my secondary school education I received an education in the reality of life. I um, actually did Alpha last year and there was a group of us, 10 of us who journeyed together and at the end of the course we all went to have lunch together and over lunch we all went, had it chatting and then, and then we told each other where we went to school and I told one girl where I went to school and she didn't believe me. She goes, I don't believe you went to that school. And I said, no, I went to that school. And she said, because she lived in the area where that school was, in London. And she said, the kids in that school were crazy. And the kids in that school were scary. And I said, yeah, that, that was my school. And when I think about it, um, gosh, um, it really was eye-opening. Because I remember, actually, I was one of very few students in my class whose parents were still together. And I remember that pretty much every day, some, kid, some poor kid was getting beaten up behind the, the bins in the back of the school. And I remember one time the teacher literally had to stop the class because my schoolmate, Carl, was on the roof of the school literally walking on the roof of the school. And so we all had to go outside and basically encourage Carl to come off the roof of the school so that teaching could resume. Um, so that that was just a bit of my experience. And, you know, a few years ago, I, I told a very close Christian friend um, about some of the things I believed about myself because of where I grew up and where I went to school. And I was really honest. And I think it, it was the first time I'd really talked to someone about it. And she, I'll never forget this, she looked at me and she had complete mercy and compassion in her eyes. And she said to me, Catherine, what do you think God thinks? What do you think God thinks about where you grew up and where you went to school? And she said, I want you to imagine little Catherine on the estate. And I want you to imagine where is God in that? And when I took a moment to stop and to really think about it, I closed my eyes and I felt God say to me, I love her. I adore her. She is so precious to me. I am always with her and I've always been with her and I'm never going to leave her. And when I thought about that, when I thought about God's perspective in the reality of our lives, it set me free. Because I know that God's love changes everything. And the moment you choose a different narrative, you know, you may walk through the streets of the city of London, and you can choose that story define your life or you can cling on to a story about some other part of your life which you've, which, you've, which has built a narrative for you to make sense of the world around you but I'm telling you if you choose to believe the story that God tells you that will transform your life and has the power to bring the deepest healing breakthrough and freedom you know God is so wanting to set his children free. A children that grow up in poverty can often experience a real fear of failure and self-limiting beliefs. And I believe God is speaking a different story and giving people a narrative of hope, one that is far greater than one that they, they immerse from their, their environment. Isn't it clear by now that God operates quite differently? He chose the world's down and out as the kingdom's first citizens with full rights and privileges. This kingdom is promised to anyone who loves God. You know, when you wrestle with the kingdom of God, and someone once asked me, what does that word kingdom actually mean? It means a different system. That in God's kingdom, the lowly are lifted up. That's God's kingdom, where rich and poor can dwell together and there is no separation. You are my brother. I am your sister. And we're part of this family and community where the lenses of wealth, power, and status disappear. That is what the kingdom of God means. This community... The community of Jesus believes that every person is made in the image of God and is deserving of dignity, of respect, and of love. This is what Jesus has made possible. And when God looks at his church, when he looks at the state of his body, he is using a completely different way of measuring. He's looking for signs of health in his body. And the signs of health reflect the way we care about the poor, the broken, the weak, and the vulnerable. Because those signs help us to realize we fully grasp the gospel, that we cannot earn our salvation. You cannot achieve anything in the eyes of God. He is so much greater, but he sent us his son. And only God can open your eyes to the reality of your spiritual poverty. There is one who laid down his life, the ultimate sacrifice and service to humankind. And he is the one whose opinion truly matters. And that is the most important thing to remember. What does Jesus think? What does Jesus want me to do with my life? What difference does having a faith in Jesus even mean for the Monday to Saturday? I feel like God wants to bring breakthrough and transformation in the way that we live Not just on a Sunday morning, but so much more. And as we press into that, we're going to see stuff shift in our communities in London. And each one of us has a different part to play. For some of us, it's going to be our prayers for the poor, our contending and our standing with those in prayer, interceding daily. For some of us, it is going to be to roll up our sleeves and start working to transform and bring about kingdom transformation and serve and love the poor. For some of us, we will need to give radically generous to initiatives that break through systemic injustice in our society. And for many of us, if not all of us, it will be our friendship to the poor. I cannot tell you how many teachers, mentors, Coaches, lawyers have played their part in my journey. And I am so grateful because what they spoke over me was something I just couldn't see. They not only opened up doors, but they changed my life through their advocacy, for their saying, You can do this. And that is what we are called to be in London in 2023. When we see someone who's struggling, not to walk away indifferent, but to think, Jesus, what can I do to help? Maybe it's only to buy someone a coffee. Or maybe it's to do something more for them. And each and every person is called to something different. In tough times, remember God's presence with you. Prioritise your relationship with God. But remember God's perspective. Remember God's priorities. And remember the poor. Remember the reason for the hope that you have. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.